Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Please welcome this evening's guest moderator, Kelly Hoey from Women Innovate Mobile and tonight's panel. Thank you. It's great to be back um, at the Apple Store and excited to see everyone and excited about this panel. So I'm Kelly Hoey. I'm one of three co-founders of Women Innovate Mobile. We are a startup accelerator. We are um, investing in and do a funding uh, program, investing in mobile and mobile first companies that have a diverse founding team, in particular a woman on the founding team. And a lot of the companies and startups we see have very strong role models um, in terms of women founders. I think if we look around in the tech world, a lot of the time with new companies, you see a, you know, I say a strong personal brand um, aligned with a strong corporate brand. And so that was part of the genesis for this conversation tonight. So rather than me reading off who they are, they're going to tell you themselves. So we're going to start with Holly Lynch. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you, Kelly. Um, my name is Holly Lynch. I've been in the branding space for about 15 years now, which is kind of a daunting number. Um, I founded a company called The 85%, which for those of you who don't know, 85% of the purchases in this country are made by women, but only 4% of the companies are actually led by women. So I started a company really focused on helping corporate leaders, one, understand how to communicate with their audience better, but also to really advance women in business and those who are founding companies to take it to the next level through personal branding and coaching as well. So that's why I'm here to hear from these ladies about their own personal brands. Hi, thanks for coming out. I'm Carly Heitlinger and I am the college prepster. So I blog, started blogging when I was in college and as a freshman and it just sort of took off as social media started growing and as I was growing older and learning about branding and business and so that's sort of where it started. Hi guys, I'm Julia and um, I'm a professional race car driver and um, I've been doing that for about 10 or 11 years and uh, yeah, being a racer it's a very public sport and uh, we need to really develop a personal brand and so I too am here to learn and uh, hear from these ladies. Hi, I'm Kate White. Until last year, I was the editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan magazine for 14 years, which was great experience, not only learning about a, a huge international brand, but how to kickstart it for another century. Uh, but a couple of years ago, I told my boss I, I'd, I was getting ready to leave because I thought while well, I was still not young, but maybe young enough to work on my personal brand a little bit because I write murder mysteries and career books. So I left and um, experiment, experimenting with uh, you know, being Kate White and seeing how that goes. Though I miss working on the Kama Sutra. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, just pausing for a minute, I would love to be able to introduce myself as, hi, I'm Kelly, I'm a race car driver, but that is, good, you know, in my next lifetime, that's what I want to do. So part of the genesis, actually, of this conversation was particularly um, Julia and Carly, because I think we've seen um, recently the sort of the, the evolution and the rise of not just strong personal brands with Gen Y women, but strong personal business brands. This is not about a hobby, this is about a, uh, about a business. So, um, Julia, let's go back to you. So you're, you're a race car driver, you're also a Stanford student. Talk about, you know, sort of, I actually also want to say she's a New Yorker who drives. Let's just pause on that for a minute. Yeah, a round of applause for that one, a New Yorker. There are a handful of us, yes. <laughs> and drives well. So talk about, 
you know, what you're doing beyond being, you know, a NASCAR driver. Yeah, so I love racing, and that's where it really starts. You know, I love going fast. I love the teamwork. I love the competitive uh, nature of racing. But um, the business of racing is one that requires a lot of funding and sponsorship. And unless you come from a family with really, really deep pockets, you have to be able to kind of fund yourself or get sponsorship. And so around the time I went to college, I started realizing, okay, I need to somehow turn what I love, who I am, what I do, into something that's a little more serious, and uh, that's where you know I actually developed Julia Landauer Racing into an LLC to make it a legal entity. And I immediately saw a switch in, you know, I was credible now. I had some legitimacy from with people outside of the racing world, and it's been a lot of experimentation. You know, there aren't a whole lot of New York female race car drivers out there, and uh, there's definitely not one way to make it work. And so, especially now with all these personal brands, I'm trying to learn as much as I can to develop a relatable brand with this extreme sport and make it, you know, lucrative in the sense that I can then advance. So that's where we are. Very cool. And Carly, I mean, you started your blog in 2008. Did you start it as a business, or it evolved to that? Yeah, I think. I absolutely started my blog as a creative outlet, and blogging was not what blogging is today. And I think that's been really hard for me because a lot of people ask me like how to start a blog, and I don't really know how to start a blog in this market. I don't know. I think I started it in a completely different market, and it was something completely for me and something really fun. And the only reason why I started taking it seriously was because someone on the crew team, I was a coxswain, sort of told me that I wasn't a real blogger unless I had a thousand followers. So it started as a competition and <laughs> me being really competitive, I wanted to like show him that I could get to a thousand followers and throughout that process, I learned a lot about myself and one of the things I really liked was marketing and as the, I was learning about myself, the actual social media market itself was taking off. Like Twitter came out, became like mainstream and wasn't just about people tweeting about standing in line for breakfast. And I think when that happened, there was a huge shift in both my personal life and my professional life as a student who was trying to start a business in college. So when did you get your accountant? Oh, <laughs> well, that's the funny thing is I started my blog because I failed accounting. <laughs> I was having a really rough year, first semester at college, so I failed accounting, started blogging as a creative outlet. And then you know, a year and a half later, I was responsible for actually doing my own accounting. Um, and I've learned a lot through QuickBooks, so I probably wouldn't fail again if I had to take the course. <laughs> so what's interesting, and I want to uh, turn to Kate and, and to Holly, so we're seeing this emergence of you know, personally successful um, business brands, and that's, that's not new. You know, we have Lulu Guinness, Oprah, Martha, you know, household names. Um, but what's different now in terms of what um, and Kate and I, have, we have talked about this. Like, what, Kate, what do you see is different now than in past, you know, kind of personally successful brands? Well, I think ever since we had that Fast Company article four or five years ago, uh, the brand called you, everyone wants to be a brand. Uh, but the more brands there are, the, the tougher it is to differentiate yourself. And I think uh, one of the key things today is really understanding your core values and starting from there as opposed to just thinking, hey, I want to be a brand, but also really uh, daring uh, to, like what I, I think of it as 
think small but deliver big, that you, it helps if you thin slice it and not try to be all things to all people. And one of the great things about Cosmo is that it really had a very clear, fun, fearless female message as a brand. And I held everything up against it. And yeah, I wasn't going to do uh, pieces, uh, major pieces about politics. You know, sex was a core part of it. Uh, but it really helped me see how important it is to be ruthless about knowing your brand, knowing it might have to be small, get it in a sound bite like Fun Fearless Female, and then be utterly consistent. Yeah. I would say, um, Holly, sort of thinking about that, like how, you know, how should people think about doing that thin slicing and, and being that fearless, like, all right, this is what I do, and being ruthless and deciding what, what is their brand and, and what they, how do they execute against it? Well, I've developed a methodology, whether it's working with big brands or people, frankly. Um, and the two most important questions you have to ask is why are you doing it and who are you doing it for? And you have to be absolutely true to that. You can't change and decide, oh, I'm not going to talk to, or, you know, I'm not going to be about serving the world. I'm going to be about, I don't know, selling hot dogs. Um, one, because if you think about Mickey Mouse, one of the best brands in the world, would Mickey do it? You know, you have to think about that fact that once you've put something out there, if you do something counterintuitive or you go, you go against what the brand has been established to do, people will question you. They'll question whether or not they want to be associated with you. Um, and if you think about going to a market, the only thing that separates private label from a brand name is whether there's an actual inherent value that you feel about something that you offer. So for instance, and you know, one of my favorite brands, because I worked on it, um, is Dove. And to this day, you know, after the, the campaign launched in 2005, one of the happiest days of my life, but um, people still talk about the value that they associate with real beauty. You know, is one of the greatest risks a brand could do is go against the entire beauty industry, which basically promises you a lie. And it's gotten a lot of people to buy products. So when a brand says, you don't need this product, that's a big risk. But ever since then, people have expected the brand to behave that way. And <clears throat> they've, when they've strayed from that, there's been a question of, is Dove as valuable as it was when it first came out with that message? So. Um, I think if you're thinking about yourself as a personal brand, as Kate said, it's really important to know what is your value in the world, why do you exist? But also remember that if you've got a core audience that believes in you and that you are serving, if you betray them and you change why you exist, then you will you'll definitely lose big time. Well, I want to come back to the, the counterintuitive um, sort of, I would say brand advice, um, but I'm, Going back to, and, and I'm looking at both you know, Carly and Julia, in terms of all right, making choices and decisions. And earlier this year, um, or maybe it was a year ago, um, uh, Julia, you made a decision to be on television. And that was, I'm gonna say, a brave and conscientious decision. Yes. So if there's a little bit about that that you can, you can tell us. Yeah, so um, I was on this past season of Survivor, and it was a very active decision and uh, a really cool opportunity. Um, but it was something that you have to take into consideration because, you know, I am a race car driver, and that's what I love, you know, is going and doing this other thing, really showing my dedication to racing. And in my mind, it was one avenue in which I could maybe, you know, 
try to increase awareness or show that you know a racer is not just what you might think of as like a southern NASCAR driver, you know. And so there was a lot of benefits that were really calculated um, into doing that, but then also into going to school in general. You know, many race car drivers do not attend college because why would you go to school if you could go in the race car all the time? But I knew that as a person, as a personal brand, in order to make it long-term in racing, I was going to have to learn a bunch from school. And technology has been changing, and I've been able to learn about that and just really benefit myself. So it's super important to make all these active decisions in trying to see how it can benefit you and hopefully limit risk. Yeah. Carly, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think when you start making these decisions, it's really easy most decisions that you feel like uncomfortable about or like is that tug is because you're gonna by default not speak to a certain audience and you have to like make that decision to say this is who my audience is and this is who it's not and when you get to that point you have to like put up the shield or like grow a thick skin or however you want to say it and not listen to the criticism that comes from you're not your core audience so making those decisions all the time for that audience that you want to hit is really important and then shielding yourself from falling into that trap of trying to be everything for everyone as Kate was saying. It's like you have to be steadfast in who you want to speak to and that might mean that you you know hear some not so nice things or some people just don't get it and that's okay. That's probably actually means you're doing something right in the brand. When, <clears throat> I'm gonna say um, looking at Holly, when do you separate you know, the personal from the business brand? And how, is there ways to do that? Or are they so intertwined now that, you know, we're kind of, it's the reality? No, I think it, it, it's when you start a company, it's either all about you or it's not. I mean, if you think about posterity's sake, obviously Carly is creating a business around Carly. It's not like she's gonna have her children be Carly. But if you're starting a company... Oh please, oh, please don't. We already have that, and we know how that's turning out. Please don't. But if you're starting a company that you intend to leave to somebody else, then making it a personal brand doesn't make any sense at all because you're giving it an automatic end date, and that end date is when you go out of business or you know, somebody else decides to take you out of business. Right. The point is there's either a company or there's a personal brand. And if it's a company that's meant to live on forever and be passed down to the next generation of CEOs, et cetera, then it can't be about you. And you have to think bigger and think, what is the bigger mission of, of this company? When it's a personal brand, it is, all right, this is me for these 10 years, and then I have to pivot slightly maybe and expand what that offering is. But it has an end date because when I decide I'm no longer going to do it, it's no longer in existence. At least that's the way I see the two. It's very different. Kate, any thoughts on... Well, I think you have to really look at the results in the marketplace and ask yourself, is it working? If you're starting to be a big part of the brand, let's say it isn't your personal brand, but the brand that you work for, the company, and you're being out there is helping sales, it's helping revenue, and really keeping track of that. I think sometimes we get so caught up these days in the PR and the buzz, we're not necessarily looking at, is it working to be doing this? I think that's a really important part of it. Yeah, well, yeah, this is one of the things we talked about before was like, what is the growth driver? What's the, what's the revenue? Where is, you know, where's this coming from? And where do I need to do to, to sort of feed more of that? Because, um, as we started off with, part of the reason for talking about personal branding was the fact that this is, you know, these are businesses. This isn't just like a hobby or a nice thing to do. 
Right, and you, you have to be looking to see what, what might have worked, you know, the, 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 the notion of, you know, uh, when I went to Cosmo, it was sort of don't throw out the baby with the bath water, um, and, and maybe the baby still has some life in it, but at a certain point in time, you've got to figure out what's, you know, what's the growth for the future, as Marissa Mayer is dealing with, where, because what worked at one point isn't necessarily going to work going forward and you really have to have your eye on the future and see what's coming down and that's when as Holly said you may have to do some serious pivoting. Yeah. Let's talk about a story that hit this past week JK Rowling. When do you hide your personal brand? When do you have to kind of like shelf it and then it was sort of looking at Carly and, and Julia sort of like all right are there times where you have to kind of you know hide your personal brand because of something you want to want to do or try but Holly you grab the mic I know you've got thoughts on when you hide your brand well no I, I think if you inherently see a major risk in a in a new innovation strategy let's call it that so what JK Rowling did was she tested out a new genre okay I think it was really smart she writes a book, writes it under somebody else's name. It turns out to get great critical success, but nobody buys it. So she puts her own name on it, and all of a sudden, everybody's buying it because they know her name, and it's been critically acclaimed. If she'd gone out there with her name and it had been a mediocre book, then she would have tainted her personal brand. So I personally think it's a really brilliant innovation strategy. A lot of major companies do it. They'll launch it as an independent small thing, and maybe it's, you know, some spray fabric makes you smell better or whatever. They just want to see if there's a market out there, people like it. And then they'll say, oh, it's by Tide or whatever. So that it gets mass appeal because people are like, oh, I trust Tide or whatever the brand is. So I think, you know, and I'm sure Carly and Julie can speak to this in terms of what they've tested out. But I think in some ways it's a safer way to develop an innovation stream. Yeah. Kate, any thoughts to add on that? I, I actually didn't think it was a good idea because <laughs> I feel like she has this brand that's expanding and to some degree it's like Julia, the umbrella for Julia is risk taking and, and really being out there and so the show worked in her brand in general. And I think for Rowling, she's an author and she wanted to try a different genre and that's fine. That doesn't hurt her brand. But I don't know why exactly she did this thing and now whether she leaked the info or not, I don't know. But so I, I didn't quite get it. It's, I, I, well, well, and it won't do a show of hands to say, see who ran out and bought the book once she found out she wrote it, but anyway. Um, I think one of the things that's really interesting is I started College Prep Store when I was 19. I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. Social media wasn't social media. And one of my biggest fears is that the College Prep Store is like a fluke. And I'm very well known for the College Prep Store and that's like what people immediately think of me as when I meet people or when I'm going into a, a job interview or when I'm doing consulting. Like most of the time I'm getting in the door because of what I've done in the past. And one of my biggest fears is that I created this thing and it, it was the right time and the right place and the stars just perfectly aligned and Twitter came out the right month, right when I was being told, you know, a competition. And so I actively pursue things as Carly and pray that someone doesn't Google who I am or something and seek out opportunities as consultants, as myself. And it's funny because I keep coming back to this idea and I think JK Rowling probably is experiencing the same thing is the success really is 
not the brand, the success, the success is like what came behind it. And even when I'm consulting as Carly, everything I learned and everything I've gained as a college prep store comes through. And, you know, I have to like push aside that like negative like thought in my, the back of my mind saying like, oh, it's just like a fraud. It was just like, you know, a one-time thing. It's never gonna be replicable. It's not scalable. And, like, you know, get that in my head that it's, it's part of the story. It's part of the, you know, the trajectory. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I was, I'm going to go back to what Kate said because um, for me it's completely different with racing. You know, early on when I just entered the Twitter verse and everything and all the social media, I was really trying to very closely monitor everything I was putting out. Like, you know, I was me, Julia, and then my racing front was something else. And I found that, you know, people had a harder time relating to that. And I think by nature of doing this high risk activity, um, people want to follow that high risk. And I think people have been really receptive to when I go out and try things and keep everyone in the loop. And then if it fails, oh well, and we move on. And if it's successful, they got to feel like they were part of it. And so it's, it's super interesting to see that there's two totally different ways that this works. Are the things that you actively choose to not put out there with respect to who you are? Or do you feel a pressure that you need to share everything? Um, I kind of think of it as, uh, you know, if I met someone for the first time and, like, I was having a conversation with them, what kind of information would I give out right away to show enough of who I am without, you know, without giving too much away? you got to be on your guard a little bit, I think, especially with the potential to be in a really public sphere with racing. Yep. Um, but, you know, you want to be authentic. And I yep. think that opening yourself up a certain amount allows for that kind of authenticity without making yourself too vulnerable. Cool. I want to go back to... Um, uh, part of the conversation we had earlier that came up in terms of being, you know, counterintuitive. Um, and um, Kate, this all rose out part of a conversation Kate and I had in, in advance of tonight. And where is there sort of like the contrarian, you know, counterintuitive brand advice? And you had a great, great story on, on that in terms of things you may do want to do to build your brand that really don't seem to be the thing you should be doing. Well, my boss, when I left Cosmo, asked what I wanted as a going away present. Now, if you're ever asked that, I suggest you choose jewelry, but I chose <laughs> a week at Harvard Business School, Women in Leadership uh, Forum, because I just wanted to do something that made me feel a little uncomfortable, and it was so fabulous. And one of the courses there was, a was called Dare to be Bad. And the notion was in business, you have to dare to be bad at something, because if you are bad at something, it means you're not putting your energy there and you're putting your energy into the thing that you're good at and is your key DNA or secret sauce of your brand. So I thought that was such an important thing to recognize because I think sometimes we, we go out there and we want to be good at everything. And so it's the notion of what could you be bad at? And just quickly, uh, the professor cited a, a bank in Massachusetts that was really, really bad in terms of offering much of a menu to customers uh, for, to, to uh, you know, use for products for their money, but they were fabulous at customer service. And people chose this bank, it was incredibly successful because they loved the way they were treated. So they stunk at having much of a menu, but they were great at customer service. So there, there's such a good lesson in, in that, I think. And that's, I love that story. Um, and Holly, you and I have talked about this with respect to Dove um, and the Real Beauty campaign. So maybe, can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
we, we knew it was hugely successful in Europe, but there was a huge risk launching it in the United States because, frankly, we're significantly more conservative here, even though we like to think that we're free thinkers and, and whatever. Um, the sizes of the models had to be smaller. We had to make sure that they were all smiling. They couldn't be too happy to be really beautiful. You know, everything <laughs> had to forbid fit. forbid ladies were too happy being beautiful. Oh. And you know what? The focus groups completely <laughs> failed. Women hated it. But there was a true belief but from the head of, of the client saying, this needs to exist. This needs to come, people need to understand that the beauty industry is lying to them and that we want them to celebrate what they are. Um, even more controversial, and actually this was pro more of my favorite end of, of the Dove experience, was we launched ProAge. And um, for those of you who didn't, experienced that launch. Um, it was uh, an entire photo shoot with Annie Leibovitz shooting women over the age of 50, naked. The TV ad was all women over the age of 50, naked. Uh, basically, Holly, I was not in that shoot, by the way, just <laughs> FYI. But every single TV network said we couldn't air this because that was nudity and it was inappropriate and they wouldn't accept it. So we called up Oprah and we said, hey, TV a strong personal brand. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> TV networks won't air this. She said, give it to me. I'll air it on the show. And it was the most successful launch of a product ever. Um, it got huge TV coverage. Tons of people watched it online. Um, and sort of that we were given this enormous barrier. We've spent millions of dollars on a TV shoot. Can't air it on TV. So, you know, you just have to be willing to take that risk, piss off a whole bunch of people, and sometimes it really works. And as Kate said, sometimes, you know, you don't want to make everybody happy, and it's better if there's a debate. And I think if Sheryl Sandberg has done anything good with Lean In, it's starting a debate. You may hate her book, you may think that it's the worst piece of writing ever, but she's forced people to have a conversation. And I think a really strong brand forces a conversation. Awesome. Awesome, awesome. Um, I mean, where do we where do we go from here? What else? Have we, what else have we haven't talked about? Two of you, counterintuitive advice or things that you have tried that everyone said to you, no, you can't do that. Um, I think for me, the biggest thing is the fact that I graduated college and I started thinking about it. I guess the December before, so I had like six months where it was like on my mind of what am I going to do? I'd had people come to me and offer to buy the college prep start, frankly, just from like the SEO value alone. Um, and what they realized was that the value was rooted in myself and it was, the sale was just, the, the contract was weird. And so that fell through and I was like, I don't know what to do. Like, what am I gonna do as a college prep start outside of college? And it, frankly, it's something I, I deal with every day. And 50% of people are like, stick with it. Like, it's great, you're always going to be the college prep start. And 50% of people are like, how can you be the college prep star outside of college? It's totally on my mind, but I think it's one of those things I'm going with it until it becomes a real issue. It's not an issue at this point. Yeah, yeah. Julia? Besides going to school and doing a TV show, um, I have had less things that are counterintuitive, but something that was interesting was like having really concise sound bites as to who you are and what your mission is. And I found that I actually messed that up the first time I tried doing that. I kind of self-inflicted labels on who I was being a racer, a New Yorker, a Stanford student. And I found that a lot of people actually 
wouldn't characterize that the same way as I would. I had it as all this great, you know, all these great things, but other people didn't necessarily see it like that. So something that I learned kind of a painful way was, you know, just let your personality shine through, let that define who you are. I now don't label myself like that because it's too limiting. Like, people perceive things in totally different ways and keeping the option open for them is clearly very important. So, if you could be any brand, you know, personal brand, like who's a personal brand that you're like, all right, this is the one in terms of the role model, you know, the star that you would follow? I didn't warn any of you of this question. <laughs> I like to keep a little back. Well, if we're going to be authentic, we should just like being our own brand. <laughs> <laughs> good answer, good answer. Well, I would say, um, you know, someone that I look up to is Oprah. We've talked yeah. about her, you know, kind of coming from her background. A lot of people saying no in every regard of her life. Um, right. And taking her skill, which she was really good at, really good at talking on the radio, and... Um, capitalizing on that and bringing people in and telling this story and that's who she is. And I think like, if you're trying to have a personal brand and make it really yep. successful, that seems like a wonderful model to yep. try to go after. Thoughts, I, I, Carly? I might just say that, uh, I, you know, I read a really interesting article years ago by the writer Cynthia Heimel and she said that, you know, go to the place inside you that where you have that crazy weird thought because often when you rip it out in the light of the day, you realize there's that group of people, it's not everybody, but it's the group of people who love the whole notion of college prep or something quirky and don't be afraid to go there. And uh, I knew Lulu Guinness from the beginning of her career because her husband's one of my oldest friends. And you know, I think she's, She's quirky. You know, she wears pearls and, and a certain type of dress style. And she wasn't afraid to say, boy, in an era of grunge, I'm going to be in the pretty dresses and pearls. And I think it's just so important not to you know, pay attention to that voice that may be telling you that your idea is stupid and crazy when it's really brilliant. I was just sort of thinking out, out loud here, too. Kate, thinking about you, like you stepped into you know, I'm going to say an iconic magazine started by, you know, an iconic woman, Helen Gurley Brown, and, and sort of thinking about, all right, how do you, you know, sort of, those are like, in some ways those are big shoes to fill, but it's a big legacy. And in terms of how you sort of separate yourself from, you know, entering into a role or taking a position where, you know, you've got this sort of icons before you. Well, I'd been the editor of four other magazines before that, and one of the things I'd, I'd probably made this mistake myself, and I'd certainly seen plenty of editors do it, where they come in and right away they're going to change it, they're going to put their stamp on it. But it's really important to see what is the secret sauce. I did a ton of research at Cosmo. I hired Jane Buckingham, who is a fabulous researcher on Gen Y and Gen X and to see what, what still works and go with it and not fight it if you've got a secret sauce that's still viable, even though you may need to tweak it a bit. Great. Um, it's probably getting close to time to see if we've got some, some questions. So if you've got questions, raise your hands. There's going to be some folks from Apple walking around with microphones, and they will... They will um, um, Take your questions and um, 
my last kind of question for the for the group here is there was an interesting article in the Harvard Business Review, also came out in the last couple of weeks, Nilifer Merchant. Your thought, what comes first? Career or the brand? I think it has to be your, your core values and your specialty and what you do and the brand emerges from that. I would have to agree. I think with with racing, it's maybe a little more intertwined, a little more kind of going at the same pace, but you have to start with you and yep. yeah. Cool. I think you. Yep. I don't know. I don't think I can separate the two. I think often a personal brand evolves with your lifetime and it's not like you're born a personal brand. And so while I agree that it has to be corely you, I think most people don't figure out the you until you get to be, or at least for me, I was late 20s, maybe personal brands and the you is being discovered sooner. And maybe that's what's the big revolution right now is that Martha and Oprah didn't know what the personal brand was until they had reached that pinnacle in their career. And we now have a generation of young women that can identify what's important to them and they make, can make a career out of it. But I had a very twisty road before I figured out me. Right. You know, so I don't think it's quite as easy, but that's just personal opinion. I would say so. And for those of us who've had twisty road careers, I'm all about discovering the personal brand later. So, questions? Uh, thank you so much for taking the time today to speak with us. I'm really happy to be able to be a part of this. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, Kate, you talked about the fear of being bad, and it related a lot to an interview question that a lot of people love to ask of what's your biggest weakness. And I wanted to just hear from you, what's that thing that helps you address that weakness head on, or how do you get over the fear of being bad as an individual without sort of a group or a brand to back you? Well, having grown up... Uh Catholic, uh, not anymore. But I, you know, I, I was the quintessential good girl, and and I wrote a book in the '90s why good girls don't get ahead. And the problem with being a good girl, you've got this gland, and like hemorrhoids, you can shrink it, but it, it almost never goes away. And I tend to, to pull my punches sometimes, and even in my writing with my books, I have found sometimes I, you know, I may be afraid to go there and make the murder as grisly as it possibly could. And what was great about Cosmo for me, 14 years of, it had to be bad. It had to be wicked, you know? I had to write cover lines like, what to do with an iffy stiffy. And so <laughs> that really helped me in so, is that okay to say here? Um, <laughs> but that helped me in so many ways. And I think that um, I like to say, you know, in, in this career book I just did, I think it's great to step back from everything you do and ask yourself, could it be bigger? Could it be bolder? Could it be better? Could it be more badass? And get in the habit of doing that because you may think you do it, but unless you really go through that exercise, uh, you know, you just may be a little too good enough with it. I think the next time someone asks you what you're bad at in a jo job interview, just say karaoke. <laughs> just leave it at that. Hi, I'm Nena from New York. Thanks for coming. Um, my biggest question is, what was the major driving force for you guys to build out your idea or your brand when, when it comes to either a specific skill, person, experience, or resource? What really helped you create which, what you had in mind to create? Julia? Um, the fact that at about age 10 or 11, I realized like I could not 
want to spend my time doing anything else. Like it's a really internal fire that, you know, the idea of doing another job that's not related to the racing industry was just like not acceptable in my mind. And so I, I have to make it work. I'm still in that process. I still have to make it work. We're not quite there yet, but it's really not, I would not be comfortable doing something else because I know that this is internally what I need to do, a calling if you will, but that I can't do something else, yeah. Cool, Carly, thoughts? I, um, looking, I, it's like always much easier to like connect the dots looking back and in fifth grade, I got in trouble for selling kids acorns on, in recess and there were like oak trees everywhere but you had to buy you know, my pile of acorns and I was making a lot of money doing this and got in trouble and had to give all the money back at the end of the week and <laughs> I think I really struggled with the idea of monetizing my blog. It was my junior year when the idea of monetizing something on a platform that was opinion based was growing and I sort of had to make that decision of is this the path I want to go down or is this a path that I want to avoid? And at that point, it's, is this a hobby or is this a business? And I really struggled for, I think, two months. I was home over summer break and I was really struggling with this. And I finally just realized that at my core, I really love business and I love marketing. And marketing is all about making the sell. And it is a business and my blog was a business and that was something I wanted to pursue. And I, I had laid all the groundwork. and to not go that way. I felt like I would have really been not listening to myself and not listening to my core, and I went with it, and here we are. Thank, thankfully you did. And I'm going to ask the Apple Store if they've ever had someone on a podcast admit that they sold acorns. <laughs> this may be another first. Hi, and uh, thank you for um, all your stories. Um, I'm actually wondering, because all of you were um, touching upon um, you know, the personal brand growing through the years, um, and I would like to ask you, if you could go back, you know, how many years do you go back when you don't actually reflect your current brand? And also, has it been a conscious decision, as in you, at some point, you decide, well, I'm going to, you know, reevaluate and, and, you know, go with something I want to be? Or has it been a gradual process and one day you wake up and you say, I'm actually not what my website says anymore? Interesting thought. Kate, do you have thoughts in terms of? Well, certainly wanting to get out of the magazine business, that, that shifted. But I would say from the time I was little, I, I guess you could say even as a six-year-old, I wanted to be a content provider <laughs> because I, you know, I created little plays and that sort of thing. But I, I do think a lot of women, you know, I've interviewed a number of women uh, who are successful for books, and a lot of them you know, stumble on the outside uh, upon what they want to do. And I think the more you're a mercenary for experience, the more it helps you see if it is time to change uh, or if you haven't figured it out yet. It's, th those women found it mostly on the outside. Yep, yep. Holly, thoughts on, on, you know, from people you've worked with in terms of that shift from you know, one thing to, to another. I know, you know, one, a friend of mine who's a blogger should have sort of dropped one title on her blog to another title on the blog, and she's a mommy blogger, and it's going to be very interesting when her kids are no longer three, four, five years old. She sort of thought to herself, you know, when they hit at a certain age, I don't, 
you know, what, what's that blog going to be? Because I don't need to be talking about them when they're they're teens or preteens. So, you know, thoughts. Um, you know, you when you asked before if you could be any personal brand, who would you be? Who would it be? And everybody in this audience may hate her. I happen to think Angelina Jolie is one of the most brilliant chameleons ever to hit the stage, um, from being. The girl who was in the Oscars who kissed her brother and got into a whole lot of trouble, to her time with Billy Bob, to everything that she's done. And now she's working with, she's a UN peacekeeper, she's a, a diplomat to the world, living in Africa with her 10,000 children, <laughs> and she's about to cut off her breasts. Like, this is a character, that is, this is a personal brand that has evolved from being the bad girl to being one of the most humanitarian figures leading change and making women feel that they don't have to follow a particular path. So I think a lot of personal branding, if your motivation shifts, then your brand has to shift. And if you're focusing solely on, you know, you have to be this one thing forever, then you're probably one, not paying attention to what your audience wants, because after a while it gets boring if you're the same story over and over and over and over again. But it has to be, you know, I don't know. I think at some point everybody wants an evolution um, and they want to feel that you're growing up, so to speak. Um, so I think every personal brand at some point has to tackle that, how am I growing up, where am I growing up into, you know, what is going to be the next expansion on, you know, maybe it's graduate school prepster, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Or professional prepster, or um, post-college prepster, or. But I, I think, with a, at least with Angelina, she her audience is growing up with her, so there's an expectation that she's going to grow up, right? And I think that with every personal brand, there's the expectation that, you know, you'll go through the seismic shifts because every person does. Yeah, it's a great example, Angelina Jolie. More questions. Hi, ladies. Thank you so much. This has been so motivational. I know for me, I don't know for anyone else. Um, you talked a lot about sort of having a winding path to get you where you are today. And I guess my question is, what was the biggest obstacle that you faced during that path? And how did you sort of move past it and overcome it? I don't know. Well, anyone who's had a winding path. I think for me, the I mean, I'm 23, I haven't had that much like, you know, capital R real world experiences, but what's interesting is that literally the worst moment of my life was when I was, I went from being the smartest person in my high school to, you know, middle of the pack at a really intelligent school and I was surrounded by smart people and I lost my self identity because I was labeled as smart since I was, you know, two. And that is how I identified myself until all of a sudden I was, you know, 18 sitting in a classroom and having serious anxiety and, and panic attacks to the point getting kicked out of the classroom because I was distracting everyone else, that that was the lowest part of my life. And what's interesting is that that is literally where my brand came out. It, that is what drove me to figure out who I was and what my core values were. So it's, I think it's those parts, those like moments where it's uncomfortable and painful and and hurting, literally hurting, where you really find out who you are and you're really able to like drive forward and put, you have no choice, like you feel like you're dying and you feel like you're at the bottom of the hole, but like the cliche is true, the only way to go is up and I think you really pull yourself out of it and you come out way stronger 
you can't possibly come out not stronger than you went into the situation. And I think that, like those are the defining moments. And, and you know, when I think about my own career. It you know, I would say that the brand and the label was what was assigned to me. Canadian, Virgo, lawyer. What does that say? <laughs> Don't take a risk, right? All this kind of stuff. And and for me, it was is someone asking a question in. Um, 2009 about a job I had and I was like they asked a very basic question like tell me what you do in your job or what, what I know the question was what are you doing at and I heard the question as what are you doing at and this internal voice was like time to make a change and I'm realizing that I was probably wearing a lot of labels that weren't really me um, so um, I think that's probably the best branding explanation of why this Canadian Virgo lawyer had this very conservative quiet life and all of a sudden you know i feel usually when people try to shift their brand um it's something they do in like behind the closed doors type of deal but uh i can speak recently like two people who announced that they're changing their brand to the whole world is snoop dogg and and sean combs two music executives right and they both, Snoop Dogg's like, I'm changing my name to Snoop Lion. He told everybody this. And then, and it's, I don't know how it's working yet, because the time will tell. And then P. Diddy's like changed his name like five million times. And he's now Diddy, I think. He's Diddy. Now, he's currently Diddy. And it, it, was, it seems to work for me as a successful vodka product. And he's, he's, um, he seems to be doing well. Whereas you take, within that same sphere of hip hop, you take a person like Jay-Z and 50 Cent, who took the more traditional route of, I'm just growing up. Like I'm no longer a streamer. I'm becoming an executive, and I'm gonna own like a music company, or I'm gonna start a sports agency. And they kind of do it the more traditional route. Whereas, you know, they're like, everybody, I'm changing. Watch me change. Yeah, yeah, and that's 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 an interesting. Um, I would say interesting examples because when you think about the music industry, you know, you think about Prince, or the artist formerly known as Prince, or the you know, whatever it was, you know, it's the people who take this active, active tactic, you know, when you think about Snoop Dogg, you know, to go to Snoop Lion, it almost fits within that brand. There's a, there's a humor to it. Um, whereas if he perhaps had come up with, I'm going to be, you know, Sean Smith now, we all would have gone, what? You know, that kind of thing. Um, but, and Sean Combs, I mean, a brilliant example. I mean, here he is, entrepreneur, businessman, but very visibly changing um, his brand and, and persona. Um, I would say, Kate, from all, all your years of, um, you know, watching all these celebrities, thoughts on these sort of public celebrity, you know, well, shifts well, with the brand? I think you can do it publicly, but I also think you look at people like Angelina, that was an evolution. And one of the things I used to hear from our, the, the people who work for me in LA is that, boy, she controls it. That when you see a tabloid shot of her, they've been informed that this is where she's gonna be and she sets it up. And uh, I got to know uh, Ludacris a little bit uh, when I was working in the magazine business. And I think his whole career, uh, evolved into the acting and a little gentler ludicrous and so i think sometimes if you think it's going to work to do it uh as an evolution you can try that and maybe if you need something more dramatic you announce it there we go hi ladies my name is brandeis and i have a frugal style blog and i'm wondering i have a twofold question i don't know if i missed it but how you all know at what point it's time to bring on some help to help you with this brand and how do you maximize your time efficiently with all the responsibilities that come along with developing a brand carly i'm gonna put that one to you because you know 
you have your personal brand and uh, you've got a funny thing called a day job too. Um, so. Yeah, I think I'm like one of the only bloggers. I, I tell people that I have a job and they just assume that my blog is my job and it's really, you know, just what I do at night. And actually I was at Kate's house for dinner last week and she asked me, so, you know, who helps you? Like, how do you do this? And I said, it's just me. And I mean, everything from responding to emails, responding to tweets, to sending invoices, to writing, all the graphics stuff, and you know some things I'm not so great at. And one of the hardest things for me is letting go of control. And it's a weird balance between it's your personal brand, it's like beyond a company, right? It's not just the name Dove that's disassociated from yourself. Like this is you, and how can you let that go? Um, and ironically, you know what I'm learning in my day job is I'm being I'm forced to learning how to manage and delegate and you know, um, assume and help people get to what they need to do and letting go of that control. And so everything I'm learning at my day job, which is why I really have a job, because I want to be able to learn those real life skills working with other people, I'm getting to the point where I'm actively seeking for help and that sort of thing. And it also comes down to being able to afford it and Payroll is not fun, and you know, <laughs> I don't know. Those oh. grown up things with a company, yeah. If I could add something, I also think that there comes a point where, like, no one person is going to be excellent at everything as much as we like to think we are, which I know I have. But, um, you know, is there a point where it's actually much less efficient for you to learn how to do something by yourself? Whereas, could you bring on someone who either shares the same mission as you, who sees the potential, who wants the financial? rewards and who is like really fantastic at what they do like bringing on the best is that going to be more beneficial even even if it's more of a financial investment for you is it beneficial long run and that's just a case by case basis exactly what, what parts can you outsource you know what what parts of you know getting the accountant which which parts can be outsourced and which part re needs to be you as opposed to oh i have to teach this person my voice i mean i think there's times when you have the ghost writer and you do all that kind of thing but at some point, it's you, and if the brand is you, you know how how do you keep that genuine um, and authentic, and you know when can it go sideways? Um, this has been a real treat for me. Partly, you know, I would say Julie and I have known each other for a while, and this is actually the first time we've met in person. Um, so, so nice to meet you. <laughs> so nice to finally, like, in person. Um, so I would like to thank um, this awesome panel. You, It's been absolutely a pleasure for me as a moderator. And as always, to thank good friends at the Apple Store for um, allowing us to take the stage. So grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys.